Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's Five Things Podcast. It's all you need to know this week in social. You know, so that way you can look really smart in front of your boss. We're your friends from Gray, here to make sense of it all. And this week, Amanda is back. Hi, Amanda. It feels like so long since we've been on the pod together. It's been a while. Feels good to be back, though. Yeah. And Tommy, it feels like since only last week we were on the pod together. Oh, Joey, I missed you, too. (laughs) Okay, things are happening this week in social, lots to talk about. Um, You know, the last few weeks, Facebook has um, just gotten annihilated in the press. But this week, some things, they seem to be course correcting the ship a little bit. And Tommy is on Facebook duty and will talk us through all of it. So up first, Tommy will talk to us about Instagram, who introduced a new feature to help teenage mental health. Then Amanda will talk to us about TikTok launching a smart app on LG TVs. And for thing three, Amanda dives into Web3. Apparently, that's where all the young people are. Uh, Facebook expanded live audio features globally and unveils sound bites. And Tommy will tell us all about that. And finally, Amanda will take us home with Snapchat adding new creator monetization tools. All right, Tommy. Talk to us about Instagram. Yeah, so Facebook may have made a right move, friends. Let's give them a round of applause. Um, But also, maybe not. We'll get into it. We'll see what happens. But basically, Facebook Vice President Nick Clegg announced that Instagram will introduce new measures to nudge teenagers away from harmful content and encourage them to take a break from the platform. This news comes less than a week after Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, sorry for mispronouncing your name last week, Francis. I'm not sure she'll listen to this, but still, um, testified in front of Congress and detailed the internal research that revealed Insta could have a negative effect on the mental health of its younger users, especially its younger teenage female users. From what I gather, the nudge system will notice when a teenage user is repeatedly viewing content over and over again. You know, content which may not be conducive to their well-being and will nudge them to look at other content, which hopefully is better for, you know, their mental health or anxiety. In addition to the nudge, the company also plans to introduce a feature called Take a Break, which will simply prompt teens to take a break from using Instagram. Now, to me, all this seems like it's a very nice gesture. It's okay, you're recognizing the criticism you've got, you're responding, you're trying to make the app better. But I'm wondering if this is a little too little, too late for Instagram, especially in the face of such pushback from the public and from probably soon to be the government of the United States. I mean, on TikTok, there are features that encourage users to take a break. There's a little video being like, hey, you've been scrolling for a while. Maybe you should stop that. And I keep scrolling when I see that. I've gone three. I've gone, <laughs> I've gone three in one viewing before. It kept going. Um, so I wonder how effective these measures will really be in encouraging teenagers to take a break and also to stop looking at harmful content. I mean, Instagram's, I think the problem is that the algorithm of Instagram and Facebook, but specifically here, Instagram, it encourages people to engage and it sort of feeds off of engagement and users sometimes engage with things that are not conducive to their mental well-being. So I think maybe the issue lies in there rather than these sort of band-aids for bullet wound scenarios, which 
I don't know. It's it's a nice gesture. I appreciate the company is actually taking steps towards course correcting in the face of such monumental pushback from the public. But I'm wondering if this is going to have any real substantive effect on the mental health of its users. It's also to your point, I think it sounds like a great ad. Sounds good. But to your point of when you get served these kind of take a break messages and other apps, um, it doesn't necessarily stick. And I think, you know, after hearing the whistleblower testimony last week of Facebook continuously making decisions that are better for its company versus necessarily the user, I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps Facebook knows that these things don't actually work, but it's more of a, you know, signal virtuing to do it. Uh, I think it's it's a step in the right direction. Like, I'm not going to say this is a bad move, um, but it's going to take a lot for Facebook to kind of regain that trust and, and make its audience know that it's trying to support them and their mental health. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you think it puts too much of the responsibility on the user and not the algorithm? Like, couldn't the algorithm not show harmful content? I think it's that simple, which is why I sort of brought it up earlier. And Amanda, I'm glad you kept going on that thought because at some point you still get served it. The Explore page will find a way to show you content that it knows you're going to engage with. So being nudged towards other content, and they haven't detailed how that nudge will work and how it will get, know to get you away from harmful content and being asked politely to take a break. I don't think it's the solution that actually will solve the problem. It feels much more like um, a thing of perception for the brand and very much like a, oh, we did the thing you wanted. Yay. Everyone get ready for Instagram kids coming summer 2022, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it's more on the algorithm than the than putting the blame or the responsibility on the user. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely have to keep our eye on this one. Um, I, I'm also curious to, to see this uh, feature in, in reality, like actually in the app um, to get an idea of how, how it functions. But um, speaking of function, I'm curious, Amanda, how is TikTok going to function on TVs? Tell us about it. All right. So TikTok has just launched an app for some LG smart TVs that allows users to watch the content on the medium screen, not the large screen, a larger screen. Um, some of the details that are probably worth noting is they already do have an app on Fire TV in the US. And also this is only rolling out to new LG TV models, but they've already announced that they're going to roll it out on 2019 models in the next few months. So it sounds interesting. You think about, especially younger audiences, they're already watching a lot of, for instance, YouTube on their TVs, a lot of cord cutters, a lot of people that aren't buying streaming services are using it. The only detail that I think people are scratching their heads about is the fact that TikTok is known for its vertical video and TVs are very horizontal. So it's not the best viewing experience. Um, also, YouTube, people watch that video on their TV because it's usually a little bit longer than a couple seconds and you know what you're getting into. You can settle in and have a meal, watch with your friends, et cetera. So curious to see if the use case and the behavior is really going to be there to support, you know, what one might say is either longer term or like social watching on a TV. Um, but people love TikTok content. And as the algorithm just gets better and better, you very well could watch a bunch of 15 second videos over the course of an hour. And that's more realistic on a platform like TikTok than it is on something else. So we'll continue to see it, but I, I think it will be a behavior that eventually is adopted. It's going to take some getting used to. Speaking of the algorithm, I'm curious um, what this would mean for like various accounts on one TV. 
because a TV is a shared screen. So my algorithm might look different than Tommy's algorithm if we're roommates. Um, how, I'm just curious how that would work. Is there, Do you have any insight into that, Amanda? No, there's actually not a lot of information out about about it yet. Also, to that note, Joey, too, is like you engage with content on your phone because you like it or you share it to your friends. So when you don't have something in your hand to allow you to give them that instant feedback, it might not help the algorithm. It might actually hurt the algorithm. So I think that that's part of what they're trying to figure out um, is understanding the way that consumers are going to use it on a screen like TV that's separate from right in front of them. Um, it's not making a lot of sense just yet, though. Any impact um, or effect for advertisers? Not that we know of. I think the main thing that we have to start thinking about is there's a lot of different ways people are watching video on social. We talked last week, or you guys talked last week about IGTV reels, Instagram video, all these different short form, long form, vertical, horizontal. What we're going to see a lot of is all the platforms trying to understand if that should be separate behavior that's leveraged in a separate way, or if a consumer watching video content is a consumer watching video content. So there's going to be a lot of experimentation. I don't think it'll be a huge shift too dramatically in any direction um, until we learn more about the adoption of it. Okay. Amanda, we need to talk about Web3. I uh, This is the first I've heard of it. Maybe I'm 10 years behind, but talk to us uh, a little bit about, about Web3 and what it means. Okay, so I'm going to just do a little bit of back explaining because I think this week specifically, we've seen like an explosion of conversation around Web3, um, which is not an accident and I'll tell you why. But we have to understand what Web1 and 2 are first really quickly. So Web1 is essentially the beginning of the internet. It's when you started to be able to post blogs, post content. You could make a .com that people could go to and it was very simple. And it was kind of that one-to-many publishing and sharing era of the web. So that's like the base internet that we know. Web 2 is the era where people actually started to like interact. So you add in email, your MySpace, your AIM, Facebook, YouTube, and you can have more of a dialogue. So it's one-to-one, it's one-to-many, there's an interactive element. And that's also where we start to see these tech giants create algorithms. There's a lot of policy. There's things that they are doing as larger central companies that is impacting behavior of users on the internet. That's where we are right now. So you have, you know, your Googles and your Facebooks and your Apples that are really setting the tone of how we use the internet, what we do on it, and the behavior of the people on it. So Web3 is basically considered the next era of the internet where it moves toward a more decentralized network. That meaning it's controlled by the people, the general public, and the users a little bit more than a few, you know, powerful stakeholders. So there's a lot of pieces and a lot of companies and a lot of apps and a lot of different technology that will make up what we call Web3. It's not all of a sudden going to start tomorrow. Um, Like you think of things like crypto, which is decentralizing and removing a central bank authority. You think of NFTs, which are removing a central authority for authenticity, things like that. So it comes up in a lot of different ways. Even when you think about um, data and privacy, you have browsers, for instance, that don't share your information and decentralize the need for, you know, large data through a tech company to be shared. So one, I hope that was all kind of a clear trajectory of the the internet done in like 10 seconds. Um, And the reason that we're hearing about it now, and we're also hearing a lot more about the metaverse is because of this cultural conversation we're having about Facebook, we're having about data, we're having about privacy. And it's this behavior that's coming, especially from Gen Z, where they don't 
want to interact with Web2 in the way that we probably did growing up as millennials. So there is this huge behavior shift. They want to protect their privacy. They want to share certain information, but not other information. They want to interact with lighthearted content or content that's a little more fun and surface level versus deep insight, emotional, powerful content. They want to buy things differently. They want to use crypto versus putting their credit card into a website and things like that. So this is less of an update and more of just a moment that everybody is really starting to understand and pick up that this is a a evolving movement of how people are using the internet. Sounds like they want to learn from our mistakes. Yeah. And it's also like the appetite for, you know, the way that you actually use the internet closer to general society. Like in our real life, there's not a lot of like ruling guides to how we experience our day to day. And eventually the internet, they want that to be in that world too. And when I mean they, I mean pretty much everybody in the younger age demographics. So that's when you start to think about the metaverse is kind of getting at the same thing. Tommy, I see a little light bulb going off. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think, uh, Tommy, about all of this. Well, first off, we need to have a spinoff podcast where Amanda explains the internet uh, because I love hearing about it. And I think also as a Gen Z person, I am 22 years old, not to, you know, age myself in the, in the young way, but Hey, how are you? Um, I see these changes. Joey shaking his head. Um, I see these changes happening to the way people interact on the internet. And I've seen them since I grew up using the internet. I grew up in, you know, the heyday of Facebook booming and having that interconnectivity. Like I remember when Instagram was bought by Facebook and that was a major thing. And I think Gen Z, not to speak for a whole generation, but from people I talk to and seeing how people use the internet and interact online, I think there is a reason we're all flocking towards, you know, sites like Discord, again, getting into the NFT or the crypto game. Um, it's just a way to interact that feels cleaner and less tied down with the gunk of like, we can talk a about how Facebook is perceived um, and whether that positive or negative reception is warranted, but it's there. Um, it's like perceived as a site for grandparents and, you know, people on the far right who are built, like, becoming militias. Um, and the Web3 provides us with a space just to be that's free of that baggage where you make your own sort of space online. And so I think it's a it's a bit of a lofty concept. Like I'm still wrapping my head around it as someone who is using it and not really aware of the fact that like this is the new this is a new Pokemon evolution of the web. But I think we're gonna see especially kids my age as Gen Z enters adulthood and or older adulthood, some of us are already adults. Technically, I'm an adult, but the, who's to say? Um, we're going to start seeing this really take off. Yeah, Tommy, you're only as you're only as old as you feel, Tommy. Yeah, um, you're an adult, Amanda. I feel very young. <laughs> I was just going to add, lastly, too. So, like, you take a platform to your point, Tommy. Like Twitter, I think you know we talked about Twitter a lot and the updates to, that they've made to the platform. And at first, we started looking at it through like, are they trying to monetize? Are they trying to change behavior on the platform? But really, they've been pretty outspoken. Jack Dorsey's been pretty outspoken about understanding Web3 and its impact and this behavior shift. So then when we think of it as what users want the internet to do, and then we go back and take a look at adding in you know, newsletter subscriptions so that you can have a relationship direct from creator to consumer, open crowd, audio rooms, it, you know, they get to dictate the conversation that happens there a little bit more openly. Um, adding in monetization options for creators, it creates a self-reliant economy, which is part of the metaverse. 
they're allowing Bitcoin currency exchange. So like when we look at those decisions and the decisions that will come from social platforms, it is sometimes less about monetization and more about what is the next generation of our audience going to want out of our platform. So that's when we'll start to see some platforms find success and some might flounder or might take a second to get there. Any um, immediate impact for advertisers? Not immediate. Um, I think it's just, it's more of a theme uh, that you'll have to probably keep an eye on what's happening with behavior. I think the most immediate uh, impact will be around the kind of content that people consume on the internet, especially younger people, and the way that e-commerce behavior acts on the internet. It's going to look a little bit differently than it does to generations before Gen Z, uh, which we already knew, but thinking about it in this lens might help to kind of give a, a longer lead time to what you're trying to do in the future. All right. Well, that's all very interesting. I, I know we could probably talk all day about it, um, but let's jump back to Facebook and talk about how they expanded their live audio feature globally. Um, Tommy, tell us about it. Yeah. And other Zuck-related news and also in Web3 Metaverse news, we love the crossover. Facebook is expanding the live audio rooms feature it launched in the U.S. this past June to a global audience. In addition to public figures and creators, Facebook is making the feature a clubhouse competitor, some would say a clubhouse copycat, available to groups as well. Users will also have the ability to listen to audio rooms on their desktops, even though they can still only be created on the Facebook iOS app. The company also excitingly is rolling out its soundbite features. And soundbite is essentially a short form audio feature um, that lives in users' news feeds. Users can record a short piece of audio an anecdote, a joke, a moment of inspiration, a shower thought, in a separate tool, and then can listen and interact with other users' sound bites. Think of it as basically reels, but just for audio. And it's interesting to see Facebook get more into the audio game. This is a new area for the company. They just got into the podcast arena, if you will, this past summer. But listening to podcasts on Facebook is still limited to just U.S. audiences, I think this is all in line with Facebook's continued mission to offer, you know, a totally holistic experience. Users will soon be able to get their news, their entertainment, and photos from grandma all in one space. And the audio component could be a compelling addition to Facebook as it tries to head into the metaverse and stake its claim there. And it'll be interesting to see if they haven't entered this space too late in the game. I mean, users get their podcasts traditionally from places like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, et cetera. But Facebook is going to Facebook at the end of the day, and they're going to put money behind it, and they're going to put thought into it. And it's a juggernaut of a platform. So I'm sure this will have some success. And also, it's a new place for brands to play and engage on a platform that sometimes it feels like you've exhausted all your resources on. So I think this will be a really interesting spot to see where brands and marketers come in and how it develops from there. We will definitely let you know when this podcast is available on Facebook. Um, It also made me think is it's been a while since we've said Clubhouse clones or Clubhouse copycats. We haven't heard much from this space, whereas the beginning half of the year, that was all we heard. Amanda, I'm curious, what's exciting about this to you? So I think that Facebook is actually tapping into something smart, which is a lot of people want to listen to this content on their desktop computer or on their browser versus their phone. When you're on your phone, that's one of the, like, obviously you can use Clubhouse on your phone and listen in for a little bit, but eventually it starts to become a little bit of a chore to either carry it around with you or try to do other things. Um, 
So I think them focusing on the browser experience, especially for the audience on Facebook, they actually might find a lot of success in that. I, they will for me. I don't have Facebook on my phone. And if I'm checking Facebook, it's always on desktop. Uh, okay, so this last one, Amanda, talk to us about Snapchat uh, adding some new creator monetization tools. We love a good monetization tool. So what's Snapchat up to? We love a good creator tool. And Snapchat's been pretty good at it, which I'll dive in in a second. But this new one is called Spotlight Challenges. And it essentially will showcase a video trend on your trending page. Um, think of, for instance, a TikTok dance, among other things. Um, and the best performing clip, the creator actually wins a specified amount of money. So this is pretty interesting. And it obviously incentivizes creators to not only make content and try to make good content that actually rises to the top of a, a challenge, for instance. Um, but it also creates an easy way for people on the app to explore the best content, the most popular content, something super engaging. Um, so it's interesting. The way it's set up is like through each challenge page, you'll be able to see, you know, what is the challenge, all the submissions, the prize information, um, and decide from there if you want to kind of get involved. The thing that I do want to note is last year we talked about their um, creator monetization program in which they were going to pay out like a million dollars per day and it will be shared among all the top performing spotlight clips. Um, and, you know, people got wind of this and started creating so much content on the platform that it worked sort of because they started getting, I think it's 125 million monthly active users. But when you look at $90 million in creator payouts, it kind of becomes more of like, who's actually watching this content? Are you just making a bunch of content and then you're making money and you're leaving? Or is that ship being balanced anyway? So they started to understand maybe their previous version of this program wasn't um, the best. And this feels a little bit more sustainable. It, again, like prioritizes really good content within a certain challenge. Um, and it creates a better experience for the people that are actually watching it to come to the platform. So it's more of like a 2.0 version of their Spotlight program. But it seems like they figured out some, um, some solves from their learnings last year. Um, okay. And, and Tommy, did, what do you think about all these? I think this is very interesting. I mean, this is one of the first times we talked a lot about algorithms this episode and in the past. And this is one of the few times I've seen a platform specifically try to award not just the most, you know, noteworthy or attention grabbing piece of content, but also one that is the best, quote unquote, because they are chosen. And so it's really a way to both one have a just a host of new content, but also elevate ones that are good and have the eyes drawn towards that as opposed to, you know, Facebook could highlight a very attention-grabbing, obnoxious political post. But Snapchat, that's not the name of the game here. It's more like, can you do the best TikTok arm dance? Although it's, I guess, the Snapchat arm dance at this point. But I think this is really, I'm surprised I haven't seen a program like this before, one that really rewards people who are doing the good and makes people try to be better. It's sort of like, I don't know, a fun version of Squid Game where no one dies and people who are good at their jobs make more money. But yeah, I'm excited to see what content will come from this. Snapchat's always surprising with what they put out. And this is no exception. I think I've counted Snapchat out in the past, um, but they, they keep chugging along. And I think we'll see more evolutions like this from the platform. I can't believe we, it took us all podcasts to bring up Squid Game. Um, <laughs> well, friends, that does it for us this week. Um, if you don't already, please be sure to follow us 
on Apple or Spotify. Subscribe, follow, do all the things. Share with your friends. Tell them to listen to the show. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or points of interest, or even a complaint, just send it over to podcast at gray.com. And I'd like to thank Amanda and Tommy for joining us on the pod. I'm Joey. Also, thank you to Danielle behind the scenes and Guy, who will make us sound great. And last but not least, thank you, listener. Have a great week. Have a social week. That's it. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin, with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.